0: This is not about politics.
1: This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Day.
0: I'm Stephanie Nakajima.
1: And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. And this is also another important momentous day. Happy vaccination day, Stephanie.
0: Only two months after everybody else. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. I, how did that happen?
0: <laughs> so as you may know, I was in Denmark for the last about uh, month and a half. And they really are behind on vaccinations. I think they're still vaccinating people like 65 and above because they're having supply problems with AstraZeneca, you know, not being available anymore due to political pressures, really. And so we couldn't get one there. And and now I'm here. And literally, first thing I did within 24 hours of being here was get my vaccination. So I'm really excited to start this six-week-long process.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I think I got my vaccine with no significant health issues before my my. Girlfriend's mother in Germany got it and she's 70. <laughs> this is not right. And I think it's basically America stole all the, the vaccine supply from Europe, which is why things are going so well here with the rollout.
0: Yeah, we talk we a lot, obviously. I mean, people who are getting most screwed over are those in developing countries. But like even within the first world <laughs> or the most developed countries, there are still disparities there based off how big you are, I think. But I would have thought Germany was doing better.
1: They are just like the rest of Europe, I think. Even though they you got the Pfizer shot, right? Yeah. The, which was invented in Germany. and all basically all of these were invented in Europe. I, I, most of them. I think even the wasn't Moderna invented in the Netherlands. Oh no, Johnson Johnson was invented
0: Dr. Johnson, yeah.
1: That's why it's the Jensens vaccine. That's the one I got. I got the one shot. And so far no no blood clots crossed my fingers. And I got to like see my friends for the first time ever <laughs> after I passed the two-week period. So it's really it is a, an incredible relief, though, I, I got to say.
0: <laughs> I can't wait.
1: Yeah. You got a little ways to go. You can finally meet my dog, which I've now had for like a year. My little puppy.
0: I not know. He's Coda. not a little puppy anymore. Yeah.
1: I don't think we've even seen each other in person for like an insane amount of time. Our no. coworkers. No. All right. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. Today, we are going to talk about Biden's first 100 days on healthcare. Hashtag underwhelming. Um, I don't want to give away the results, but hashtag underwhelming. And so we're going to focus most on Biden's American Families Plan proposal, which Biden unveiled at his first State of the Union address last week. And if you, in the back of your mind as a listener, are just thinking, I have to correct Ben that this is not actually a State of the Union address. Don't do it. Don't go to your email box. You're like probably one of these people who's like, it's not me and Stephanie, it's Stephanie and I. (laughs) Don't don't message me with no grammatical fixes. This was a state of the union address and I won't hear anything otherwise. Unfortunately, there's not as much to discuss about healthcare in the American Families Plan as we would like there to be. So we're probably gonna talk a lot more about a really interesting alternative proposal that was sent to the Biden administration from a bunch of reps and senators, which Biden ignored uh, because it is very interesting who signed on to those proposals and what those proposals were pushing for. So if you are watching this podcast live on social media, right now. Feel free to put any questions you have into the comment section, and we will try to answer them and, and get to them.
0: So, so before we get into the healthcare stuff, to talk about the State of the Union, how did you feel about Biden's first appearance in front of Congress?
1: Well, first of all, I, I think I actually got to watch it. My understanding is that you were cut off. Your entire internet was cut off for the evening or something. And oh, so Georgia
0: you- was being Georgia. Yes.
1: Yeah, so you had to read it online or something. Even though we are about to spend the rest of this podcast shitting on the healthcare proposal that is in the American Families Plan, I was kind of impressed and blown away by the rest of the things, the non-healthcare related things, in which I have no expertise at all. So let me preface the nice things I'm about to say by saying I I, I don't have any expertise in, you know, expanding education opportunities, family and medical leave, all this other stuff. But you know, he was pushing for universal pre-K for, you know, I think it was ages four and five, two free years of community college, subsidized child care for low-income families, the first paid and family medical leave federal program ever, expanding the child tax credit and paying for it in a pretty progressive way, like increasing the top tax rate for the highest income earners and also increasing the capital gains tax for people who like make them more than a million dollars. So that was all pretty good shit and my you know my very limited understanding is that if all of this was passed into law we would still be way way short of most you know European countries in terms of all these entitlements that actually do allow you to have a family and afford to have children and send them to college or you know afford childcare when they're young uh, we are just so far behind but even taking strides in that direction is actually, to me, really important. So I don't know what your first reactions were as you read this online, Stephanie, but...
0: Yeah, because, you know, my understanding of how the healthcare plan is, that colors everything else that I'm looking at here. So I'm thinking like, okay, are the, you know, the transportation experts and the childcare experts looking at this plan and like thinking it's totally shit, like we're looking at the healthcare part and thinking... This is just completely inadequate. I don't know. It, it seems like it might be better, but I really don't know because I'm not like an expert in any of those other fields. What do you think?
1: We like to start off the podcast talking about subjects which we are totally uninformed about. <laughs> it sets the tone for for the rest of the discussion. But let's move on. I, I think we can probably agree that even a little bit of motion on all those all those fronts is important and is yeah. Good and thing. I think
0: that probably yeah. there's a lot to do with the fact that you know. There's a huge industry that's going to stop any sort of meaningful reform in terms of healthcare, whereas there's obviously no moneyed opposition to universal pre-K or a lot of the other things that we we could get, we just don't spend enough money on or don't spend any money on. So, I mean, in that sense, I'll I'll take my wins where we can get them, even if they're not enough. You've
1: forgotten about the powerful for-profit childcare industry and pre-K industry. I don't think that exists, actually, but maybe it does. Who knows? So, moving on to what we actually know something about, what was Biden actually talking about in the American Families Plan, you know, related to healthcare? Or actually, let's start let's start back even one further because one thing that confused me immediately was there's the American Families Plan, but then there's like the American Rescue Plan and then there is another plan. Before we even get to the healthcare bit of the most recent proposal, remind me of the difference between all the huge proposals that were just rolled out by the administration over the last couple of months.
0: Yeah, this was super confusing to me because I didn't even know which plan we were talking about. (laughs) I think the first thing to say is that they all have the word American in front of them. So there's the Mm -hmm. American family plan, the American rescue plan, and the American jobs plan. If you just take out American, then they're a lot easier to remember. The family plan, the rescue plan, and the jobs plan. This is the kind of thing that my husband, who is a Danish person, is like, why do you guys have to use American in front of anything? Like, are you going to make the Croatian Jobs Plan? Like,
1: <laughs> it's not patriotic. Like... Otherwise, it's uh...
0: <laughs> exactly. But so the the American Jobs Plan, that's sort of just you know the infrastructure plan has not been passed yet. Previously, we had the American rescue plan, which passed on March 10th. So that's already passed. And that's the one that possibly got you a $1,400 payment, if you're lucky. And of course, also with healthcare, it subsidized 100% of premiums for COBRA recipients. And that goes until the end of September. And due to that, I think they're going to enroll
1: or at least 2 million people additionally will enroll in COBRA. in Many people may have no idea what COBRA is. It's like If you lose your job, you can pay a million dollars to keep your employer-based health insurance even after you've... Right, right. But you get no subsidies. It's like super expensive. So that's why it was being subsidized temporarily.
0: Yeah. And then in terms of changes to the ACA, it removes the income limit on premium subsidies. So instead, anyone can be eligible for premium subsidies if the cost of their premium is more than 8.5% of their income. And then it increases subsidies that are already available to low-income households. And that's gonna affect about two and a half million people who were uninsured and then got insured. And then about three million people who are probably the lowest income bracket will see their premiums fall by about a hundred percent.
1: All right. So that's what was passed back in March. And my understanding is that most of that stuff sunsets eventually. Like the Cobra subsidies die off later this year, and the slightly expanded affordable care act subsidies, they would die off in a couple of years. Is that about mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah. So and the common theme with all of these is that they're all designed to pass through reconciliation, so they won't require right. any Republican votes. You know, they're overwhelmingly spending proposals and not new regulations.
1: Right. So that's kind of the common theme for what the Biden administration is doing. Is like, what can we get through only with Democratic votes? And it is overwhelmingly spending money, which a lot of industries like. So
0: <laughs> there's one thing I forgot to mention, I think. Mm. So the rescue plan that was passed back in March, that required coverage of course of COVID-19 vaccines and treatment. And then the other thing that it did that made like a slight little splash on Twitter was that it introduced new incentives for states to expand Medicaid coverage. And the reason that it made a splash is because a lot of like centristy, like wonky type people were like, oh, this is going to change everything. When of course, the reason that states have not expanded Medicaid coverage now with the extremely generous proposal that the federal government has, which is to cover a hundred percent of the costs, I think for the first like year or two, and then going mm-hmm. forward is 90%. It's not because that offer is not actually really appealing enough. It's just ideologically, of course, there's no interest in expanding Medicaid in the states that have not ex- Bandit, including Georgia, Texas, and all my neighbors down there.
1: Mm, the
0: holdouts. The holdouts, exactly. <laughs> so Ben, the American Rescue Plan, that did some things. And now there's the new bill, the American Families Plan that Biden just rolled out. So what does that add on in terms of healthcare?
1: Well, good question. It was actually a little bit hard to tell exactly what was in the American Families Plan for healthcare because Biden both in his speech and in like the press release that the White House sent out, they were kind of mixing in the things that were actually in the American Families Plan and then the things that were on Biden's healthcare platform. He's like asking Congress to pass, but is not actually going to go into the American Families Plan bill. I don't know. I thought it was a little bit deceptive. It was a little bit like just a laundry list of stuff, very little of which is actually going to be included in the bill that they're going to take up in Congress. So, you know, in Biden's speech, he talked about a public option that's not going to be in the American Families Plan. He talked about lowering Medicare's eligibility age to 60. Not going to be in the American Families Plan. He talked about extending subsidies to low-income people in states that did not expand Medicaid that you were just talking about. Not in the American Families Plan. And he also talked about letting Medicare finally negotiate drug coverage which Democrats talk about every single time they run for Congress and never, ever actually pass once they get into power. Also, not in the American Families Plan. So as Lily said in the comments section, did Biden say anything about healthcare in his speech? Barely. It was kind of a footnote. At the very end of his speech, he talked a little bit about healthcare and about drug regulations and about kind of systemic racism issues. It was tucked in with all those other like, we don't want to touch these third rail issues tucked into the very back end of the speech. So what was actually in the plan or is in the plan right now is the expanded sort of improved subsidies in the Affordable Care Act exchanges that Stephanie was just talking about that was passed already back in March. Instead of expiring in two years, they're going to make them permanent. So that's it. That's the extent of the American health plans, health care provision and interestingly, it does not even extend the COBRA subsidies. And Jennifer Wiley in the comment section was saying what a nightmare COBRA is to deal with. And we don't even get to deal with that nightmare because that part of the American Rescue Plan is going to expire in September and it's not going to be extended beyond that for people who continue to have job loss because of COVID.
0: And it is so truly underwhelming, I think, this proposal, just because both in terms of what it does, the reforms it makes to the healthcare system, and in terms of the number of people it affects and to the extent that it actually affects them, right? So how many people are actually going to benefit from expanding the ACA subsidies in the way that it is expanded? under the American Families Plan. Well, it's going to affect about 9 million people, which is less than 3% of the entire population. And this is at a time when, you know, 30 million people don't have any insurance at all. And then another 60 million plus have insurance that's so bad that they may as well just be uninsured or have such high costs for their insurance and out-of-pocket costs. And so I think it's just amazing that this was, (laughs) the big bold plan was just ever so slightly tweaking something for, couple million people to make it slightly more affordable for them. And I think that just in the sense of the path we want to go down, right? So Biden will pitch this as an incremental moderate approach. But this isn't only an incremental approach to putting more people on private health insurance. It's actually when you talk about wanting to incrementally move healthcare into a human right and less of a market good. Then you want to do stuff like you know lower the Medicare age or start putting price caps or something so that we can get a uniform system of of price controls for goods and services in the healthcare sector or expanding Medicaid. I mean, there's like a million ways in which we could go down the path of creating you know a system where healthcare is a human right as a public good, and this is the one or one of the only ways in which we could really start going down the other path of further privatizing our healthcare system. So,
1: yeah. And in his speech, Biden explicitly said, I'm going to quote him, this is all about a simple premise. healthcare should be a right, not a privilege in America. And on Twitter, many people had a good time with this comment. They said, you know, if you actually believe that, then you should be supporting Medicare for all. And this is how, kind of how rights work. You actually have to make it uh, free. You can't have uh, rights being provided by for-profit private sectors who make money by not giving you health care. And yeah, I agree with you. This is the theme is that the only expansion that we saw here, and I, again, I don't I don't want to minimize the positive impact that this expansion could have on folks who do hit those weird thresholds that we had had in the, the subsidies through the exchanges. If you're one of these people who is like making a little tiny bit too much to qualify for the subsidies, then suddenly it goes from having a significant subsidy, having zero subsidies, and your premiums go through the roof. I mean, it's going to have a positive impact for some folks, and I'm really happy for that. And I support actually all these expansions. But it is so underwhelming in the scope of what we need to be accomplishing in terms of access to healthcare in the wake of a pandemic. And also, it is 100% premised on sending all of this public tax dollars to private for-profit insurance companies who are skimming off most of it. It just makes it much more expensive to do. So, you know, we saw a lot of the squad members had tweets about You know, I think Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Pressley were both saying you can't just say healthcare should be a right and then not support Medicare for all on the other end. So,
0: yep. Looking forward to uh, seeing if they can actually push for some of the incremental measures that would actually get us to Medicare for all. I think this is the start of hopefully a real opposition within the Democratic Party to Joe Biden's agenda.
1: And I think we're going to talk about that next because this is kind of the more interesting part of this. But. Before we get off Biden's speech, I just wanted to mention the the amazing moment where Biden made this comment. He said, we all know how outrageously expensive drugs are in America. In fact, we pay the highest prescription drug prices of anywhere in the world right here in America nearly three times for the same drug, nearly three times what other countries pay. We have to change that and we can. And... <laughs> If you forget for a moment that Biden is speaking, you could have thought that that came out of Bernie Sanders' mouth. It's almost like a, a stock Bernie Sanders quote that he's been giving for the last 30 or 40 years. <laughs> and in fact, during Biden's speech, they cut to Bernie Sanders as he was saying that. And you could kind of see him smirking and like looking around. It's like, yeah, that was... We need
0: a meme of that. We had side-eye Sanders, then we had mitten Sanders. Right. We need like a bitch-please Sanders.
1: That was my line that you took. <laughs> Our peoples, could you please get on this? We want to cut away on prescription drugs. Yeah. So I had one question for you, Stephanie. There's been a bunch of articles right that came out right after this, basically asking, did the health insurance lobby basically dictate Biden's healthcare policy, at least all the policy that we saw in the first hundred days? Fair not fair?
0: <laughs> so this is old news, right? Because I think we may have mentioned it on the podcast a couple episodes ago, but yeah, back in December, AHIP, the Coalition of Health Insurers and Blue Cross, they called on Congress brazenly in a PowerPoint (laughs) that was published and is like online and stuff in response, you know, to the COVID pandemic to fully subsidize COBRA plans and then to expand the subsidies offered through the exchanges for private plans. Does that sound familiar? Where
1: have I heard this before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, basically they're saying the answer to the healthcare crisis is to funnel more money to us for-profit corporations who have been sitting on record profits while you know, COVID blows up the country. So, you know, lo and behold, these were of course the exact two plans that were included in Joe Biden's American Rescue Plan back in March. And we're going to talk next about some other proposals that were suggested offered by members of Congress, by progressive groups. And it's just really interesting that this is the exact, like lifted the language straight from the industry lobby right into his proposal.
1: So this was basically Nancy Pelosi's proposal also that came out through the House last year. I think this was when the Senate was still controlled by Republicans and Democrats couldn't really do what they wanted, but it was all pro Cobra and it was all basically lifted directly from the insurance lobbyists.
0: I think the Democrats just wanted to do what the Republicans did. (laughs) I I think the Democrats just stole the Republican platform, right? They're like, okay, what now?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we now have the Democrats are basically passing the insurance industry's platform. And Republicans, I don't think, have a healthcare platform. So we really have a gap between what Americans believe should happen with healthcare and what the two parties are representing right now. But not all of the two parties, I would rush to add.
0: Yep. So... What were the other things that Joe Biden heard but did not act on, right? There was actually a letter by members of Congress in both chambers. And in some cases, some of these members who signed on were not progressives. And this group was pushing for Biden to include something else in the American family plan that didn't quite make it. Ben? What was that? So,
1: this was really interesting and to me this is the most interesting part of the last week, far more interesting than the Biden State of the Union address, the American Families Plan, all that stuff. And I think this will have the most consequences for our movement for the Medicare for All movement. So there was two letters, one was sent by 17 Democratic senators and one came from the House side and had 80 Democratic reps. Both of them were basically calling for the same thing which is for the American Families Plan to include an expansion of Medicare that is lowering the age of Medicare to age 60, which Biden ran on. But if you remember the timing of this, he decided to run on this after Bernie Sanders conceded and stepped down. And I would say there's probably a clear connection between those two events. I think this was a concession from the Biden administration to the Sanders campaign to win over their support and to kind of Fuse their campaigns together into one national campaign. But anyway, he did say he ran on, and he keeps talking about it in public. But more than that, they wanted to strengthen Medicare. So they wanted to have Medicare cover hearing, dental, and vision care for the first time ever, and to also introduce an out-of-pocket cap which right now does not exist. Medicare is our only universal health plan that covers almost all seniors over age 65, but it does have a lot of gaps in it. It has deductibles, it has co-pays, and those can really add up to a lot, especially if you're on a fixed income as a senior, you're no longer earning a wage anymore. You're just relying on social security benefits, whatever savings you managed to cobble together in America over the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, just this structural weakness of Medicare leaves room for the private insurers to continue existing. And so when we talk about, you know, the pathway to Medicare for all, I think it's on many fronts, but one of them is expanding existing Medicare so that we can start to push out private insurers and make Medicare sufficient in and of itself.
1: Right. Yeah. And a lot of times when we use the catchphrase Medicare for all, people are like, well, Medicare has too many holes in it, too many gaps in it. You don't want to expand Medicare for all. In reality, none of the Medicare for all bills just leave Medicare as is and expand it. They all fill these gaps and then expand it. So I would rush to say that. But the really interesting thing to me is I I think when you see these numbers, 17 Democrats and 80 representatives sending this letter, my assumption and probably most people's assumption was that those were just the Medicare for all supporters in the Senate and the House sending a letter asking to expand Medicare, but this is not true. When you look at the signers of both letters, they actually include a lot of centrist leadership on both sides. This was kind of a a left-center collaboration. On the Senate side, for example, the lead signers were Bernie Sanders and Debbie Stabenow, who is not a Medicare for All supporter, also, Ben Cardin, Dick Durbin, Chris Van Hollen, Sherrod Brown were all signers on this letter. They are not Medicare for All supporters. And the same thing on the House side. The four lead signers on the House side who really led this effort were Pramila Jayapal, obviously lead sponsor of Medicare for All, but also Jared Golden from Maine, who just backed off the Medicare for All bill this session, Joe Naguse, who is a Medicare for All supporter, but then Connor Lamb, who is like the poster child for centrism in the United States. And, you know, we have to win these swing districts by not supporting anything progressive. So Stephanie, I guess my question for you would be, what's your reaction to, first of all, the names that we see on this list, but also like the tactic of slightly expanding the age range of Medicare and improving Medicare?
0: Yeah, I was a little mystified about it. First of all, I just think that it's not a clear-cut win for us necessarily to expand Medicare, I would say, downward, especially if we're not improving Medicare at the same time, because Medicare Advantage will, I assume, continue to exist and, and will even expand with the expansion of the eligibility. Medicare Advantage is one of their insurers' most profitable products, and it's just going to get even harder and harder to push it out if more and more people have it. At the same time, I think it's a really big gamble <laughs> for our insurers not to fight an expansion of Medicare just for the reason that more and more people will associate Medicare and and will be on Medicare and it'll be more difficult to stop Medicare for all if you keep bringing it down. And of course, I think that insurers would love it if Medicare took on this particular age group from 60 to 65 and 55 to 60 because they're an expensive group to insure. And you know, if they were insuring them instead through Medicare Advantage, then they could actually start maybe making money on them rather than losing money or breaking even on them. You know, they're the more profitable sectors tend to be younger, healthier people. So I, I think it's an interesting strategy from both perspectives. Of course, I want to see expansion of Medicare, uh, even if it does give Medicare Advantage more of a foothold. But I would love to see an expanded or improved Medicare that is also expanded down. One other thing that I thought was really interesting about this letter is that the signers, they actually sort of extolled the benefits of lowering the Medicare eligibility age, not just to 60, but then also to 55 and 50, I'll just read what they said, lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 60 could expand Medicare coverage to 23 million people, including nearly 2 million uninsured people. And while lowering it to 55 could give over 42 million people access to the program. And then further lowering it to 50 would cover 63 million Americans. I get the sense that this isn't just like something that they're giving to the progressive wing to appease them, but it might be something that all these more moderate seeming senators actually can get behind is a true expansion of Medicare. And then finally, I just think that it shows how much more impactful an expansion of Medicare. I mean, you lower Medicare to 50 and you're covering 63 million Americans with public health insurance. That's totally different than what Joe Biden just did with giving 9 million Americans slightly more increased subsidies to buy ACA plans. Yeah,
1: I agree with all those points. And I'm of a mixed mind because I think there's When we're asking this question, does expanding Medicare eligibility age, does that get us closer to winning Medicare for all? There's two ways you can look at it. Is it politically getting us closer to Medicare for all? And then there's the question of, is it policy-wise getting us closer to Medicare for all? I think policy-wise it definitely is, because as you were saying, expanding public insurance instead of using public dollars to expand private insurance is a much better model. It's cheaper, it's more affordable to do. And we all know that the age right before Medicare, that's really the hardest time because you face these insane premiums that are just almost impossible to afford, even on the exchanges often. I mean, that is the age group that most needs access to to free publicly subsidized healthcare. So I think it would be a real win in that sense
0: just to interject a personal story here my mom is actually working at REI yeah. <laughs> a mm-hmm. position for not very much money per hour but just for health insurance for her and my wow. dad yeah she asked me every day if we're going to get medicare for all <laughs> so <laughs> she can retire
1: <laughs> seriously i mean this is this is why at a lot of retail establishments you'll see very young and very old people working it's basically like working for healthcare you're not even getting much of a wage at the end that's left over. It's insane. I think in that sense, this is a great model. And I think strengthening Medicare is is equally important filling those gaps in Medicare is really important for, I think, just having a a national sense of confidence about public insurance. Public insurance is better than private insurance, but it doesn't help when there's all these gaps in there. But the tricky part comes in, I think, when we talk about the politics of expanding the Medicare age eligibility. Because as you were saying, I think the insurance industry will love it. The insurance industry will love it because the government would be taking off of their hands the most expensive patients who are currently in their employment-based health plans, and they get to keep the health people, which are the most profitable people. So they love that. But on the other hand, the industry that's going to complain the most is going to be hospitals and doctors because Medicare pays them less. So that's a little bit dangerous. And I think ideally for us to win Medicare for all, we want more support from doctors and hospitals than we have right now. We want the opposition of the insurance industry and and probably the opposition of the pharmaceutical industry as well. So we're not quite building the right coalition, but I do wonder if for a lot of these reps and senators, this is like a baby step towards Medicare for all, which I think it is. It's like Medicare expansion. And if you can get a plan where you're gradually expanding Medicare to get to Medicare for all, then I think that's viable. I mean, that's almost what the Sanders plan does. The Sanders and the House Medicare for all plan have these two or four year transitions that gradually expand Medicare until everyone is eventually covered. So we're just doing this, but not all in one fell swoop.
0: Yeah. I would have loved to see this letter also include a call to improve Medicare at the same time as expanding it, but that didn't happen. And I'm wondering if there is sort of a hesitation to fully take on the industry You mean like improve
1: the payments or the...
0: Oh, I meant improve the benefits because the more that you improve the benefits, the less reason there is to have Medicare Advantage, right? Like in Denmark, there's no such thing as Medicare Advantage. Oh, I see what you're saying.
1: yeah, yeah. So basically, yeah. getting rid of the incentive to go with privatized insurance.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only reason Medicare Advantage can survive is because there are holes in Medicare. So yeah, yeah. you plug those, you don't even have to take on the industry, actually, to do it. You just have to expand an existing public program. There's actually, from a political standpoint, it seems a lot easier to do something like that because you're not actually taking anything away from anybody. You're giving it to them. So, and that's actually a way you can oust insurers from something without actually having to take them off. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's the other secret advantage. Although we're saying that the insurance industry would probably like having the sickest group in their plans taken away from them, it would shrink the overall national income that goes to private insurance and it would shrink their influence probably and power somewhat. Not enough. I mean, the other downside to think about of this strategy of just lowering the age of Medicare gradually is that you get almost none of the cost savings that you get from a Medicare for all plan. The way that a Medicare for all plan works is that basically by cutting out all these insurance and all the 5 million insurance plans that are out there, you get so many administrative savings. You get so much more ability to negotiate uh, fair drug prices and medical device prices, all that stuff, that you can cover everyone for free. You don't have to spend more money to cover everyone. But you don't get that advantage when you gradually expand the Medicare age eligibility because you're still leaving all those insurance plans in the market. You're still getting all that administrative waste. You still don't have the power to negotiate fair drug prices. So to me, that's the other downside is that it's just very expensive to do it this way, to gradually expand as opposed to doing it all at once, which lets you pay for it for free. So
0: yeah. It's just so sad that the things that Biden campaigned on, that he really wants to be associated with, because they're super popular things like expanding Medicare eligibility and negotiating and that kind of stuff, he's not even willing to put on the table, much less fight for.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, part of that is Biden, of course. My sense... Even before he was elected, was that healthcare was just not a top priority from him, and he was probably not going to push much of anything. But the other reality is that you can't get any of this shit through the Senate. I mean, Joe Manchin has explicitly said he's opposed to expanding Medicare age eligibility. So that means you don't have the votes to get through the Senate right there. So I think if we're being fair, this is not just like what Biden wants and what Biden doesn't want. They're very carefully, I think, trying to craft a plan that they think will have 50 votes in the Senate side. 50 votes plus a vice presidential tiebreaker. So
0: if this is their starting point, then they're not going to get anything better than that, and they're probably going to get
1: something worse. So right. talk about negotiating against yourself, right? <laughs> so thank you everyone for for joining us. This was kind of an interesting one. And I'm interested to see what happens with this new kind of tactic and new coalition of legislators mm-hmm. pushing for Medicare expansion. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this a lot more in the coming year or two. And I want to just let everyone know that. Our next episode in two weeks is going to be a Medicare for All mailbag, which means we're just going to be doing questions from listeners live, but we'll give folks a chance to submit questions in advance as well. So make sure you're on the Healthcare Now email list. And I also want to thank our podcast team. Again, our second Woo-hoo. episode of the podcast team, the podcast manager for this episode was Sarah Sang. Our two writers were Francis Gill and Jerry Katz. And our audio editor was Cheryl Levy. Yep. So we will talk to you all in the next podcast in two weeks. Bye, everyone.